We're going to be reading a text today from Leviticus, which might not be your common route. Uh, we are walking through the wilderness, so maybe that's why we've stumbled upon Leviticus today. Um, our Lenten series, you know, the season of Lent, if you don't know what the season of Lent is, it's this time period of, of 40 days of preparation to try to get ourselves ready for Easter. Uh, and so it's prayer, it's scripture, it's meditation, it's song. And so usually we start Lent by talking about the story of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted, and then we move on from there. And we've kind of flipped that around this year, and we are, are trying to prepare by reading all of these texts about the importance of the wilderness, so that when we get to the kind of Gethsemane story, we'll also revisit Jesus and temptation, and we'll have an appreciation for what the wilderness uh, can illuminate about ourselves and about God. And so hear this text today from Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to read verse 5, I think, before we start into the main thing that you might have in your packet. Uh, it's talking about Aaron. Aaron shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. That might sound cryptic, that might sound confusing, but I promise we will get there this morning. Uh, anybody been blessed with the opportunity to, to choose which, which shoes that you were picking for the, for the morning? And anybody have the joy ever of, you got some brand new shoes? You got the new shoes that you're afraid if I get them scuffed, they'll never be what they were on this day. For any brave souls who get white new shoes, that you're going to have them and you're going to feel like, oh, for the very next day, they're not going to be living up to it. Uh, and so you, you might not wear them out as much. You might choose carefully where you put those shoes on and where you wear them to, uh, because you're afraid that once you get them scuffed, they'll never be what they were. And for a lot of us, we kind of have spiritual white shoes of we're afraid that we are tarnished, that we aren't quite going to live up to the pristine nature we want to be. And so when we make a mistake, when we cause a problem, when we harm someone, when we hurt somebody, we feel like there's nothing that we can do to fix it. And so this text is going to be dealing with how on earth do we get rid of the stain that seems to permeate our lives, the people's lives, not even just my sin, but our sins. And so that's where we enter into the story with is that problem of what do I do to clean up this tainted, the stained self. And so uh, there's a lot of ways in which People like you and I uh, try to get rid of the guilt in our lives. You think about one moment in your life of, I really regret, I wish I hadn't done this thing. And you spend your life maybe fixated on it. Maybe you spend your life not wanting to think about it. But there's some strategies people tend to take around those guilt. The first uh, is ignoring it. For anybody who, uh, maybe kids or parents, uh, you might have seen the new Disney movie, Encanto. 
or you might have heard a kid nonstop singing that we don't talk about Bruno. No, no. <laughs> and it's a song, it's playing on a family who has drama, who has a dysfunction, who wants to act like things are okay. And in that family, this one member keeps seeing people's future and they get blamed for it. And so the family decides, we don't want to talk about Bruno, kick him out, send him away. We don't want to see him. We don't want to think about him. We don't want to talk about him. And maybe you know the Bruno of your family or your workplace that we do this. We just, there's certain topics, there's certain people. Let's just act like it doesn't exist. And we all know that that never actually solves anything. Like just because you don't talk about it, I mean, the, the problem still exists. You're gonna still run into the same challenges. You're gonna repeat them. Uh, you're never gonna get past them. If you tell someone don't do something, the first thing they can't help but think about is doing that thing. And so if your strategy is the way I'm gonna take away from this, this sin, this guilt or whatever it is, is let's just not talk about it, let's not think about it. The challenge is, is it still there? And it just festers because we don't actually address it. We don't bring it out and, and do something about it. And so the strategy of ignoring it doesn't go over very well for us. It's not very effective. Some people, though, uh, would, instead of not talking about it, go the route of blaming somebody else. Again, for Encanto, they blamed Bruno. We could do that again. But in life... We don't want to always own up to our own problems, our own failures, our own mistakes. And so it's easy to just say it's that person's fault. And collectively in group situations, you tend to identify the one person. All right, let's just put all of the blame on them. Let's, them, let's just make them handle the weight of all of what has fallen apart, all of the shame, all of the guilt. Now, I'm going to tell a story which feels recent to me, but I'm realizing is almost 20 years old now. And so October 2003, I, I, I imagine most people in the room are probably Tigers fans, um, but you could probably know the collective grief and, and disappointment of uh, Chicago Cubs fans, if you can think yourself back to 2003. In October 2003, they had been wanting to win a World Series forever. They had been longing for it. They were in uh, the, the league championship series. They were so close to getting the World Series. They're up three games to one. It's the eighth inning. They're up three nothing. One out. We're five outs away. Fly ball along the left field wall. Foul territory. Moses Alou, Moises Alou tries to reach up, jump up to catch the ball. And there, a crowd of fans does what fans do. They also want to catch the ball. And one of those poor fans, Steve Bartman, became the scapegoat of that game, of that series, of the championship drought. Because how dare you? you? You touched the ball. We would have caught it. We would have got the out. Instead, the next pitch, a guy gets walked. Next pitch, a guy should have grounded into a double play. The shortstop boots the ball. They, they make an error. Eight runs score, and they lose the game. They lose the series. But Steve Bartman had to have security escort him out of the stadium. And some people would have capitalized on like the fame, even if it's notoriety of, in, in the bad way. 
But he experienced all of the shaming in part because of the, the fielder's reaction, his adamant reaction and blaming of, the fan, of that fan let everybody choose to blame him. Not the shortstop who kicked the ball next couple plays later. Not the team for not winning game seven. It's easy. He's the one to blame. He kind of looks a little different. Why has he got the headphones on? Why, you know, he, he doesn't seem normal. Let's just blame him. And so he takes the brunt of the blame. And we have people in our own lives that are the easy person to blame. Say, uh, well, this thing went wrong. Let's just, isn't it always their fault? Why are they always messing stuff up? The problem is, is that person can leave and the problem still exists. And it becomes harder of like, okay, well, let's blame somebody else and let's blame somebody else. At some point, blaming other people is not effective because you realize, all right, the common denominator here is I keep still messing things up. But it's easy to look for that person. Let's blame them. Some people, that's not their story. Some people, they don't ignore it. Some people, they don't blame somebody else. Some people beat themselves up. And they say, aren't I awful? Aren't I lousy? I never get things right. I never do what I'm supposed to. I'm a failure. You can throw in any of the negative self-talk that I'm sure you all know. We don't always say it out loud, but we are our own worst critics, usually. And sometimes you've heard someone else use that language about you, and then you've echoed it over and over and over in your own head. But we end up beating ourselves up where we just say we're not good enough. We don't deserve moving past this. And we just sit there in it. And we're all wondering, what on earth do we do when we've failed each other, when we've messed up stuff, we hurt somebody else? What do we do with that stain that feels like it's just blemished something where I can't get away from it? And that's where we get into the context of this Leviticus story. This seemingly, like, it might feel boring. It might be like, why do they have these regulations and these rituals? But in the midst of a community of people saying, how do we get past when we've done something wrong? And particularly, this story is about when we've intentionally done something wrong. Because you can make other kinds of offerings throughout the year, but they're talking about the Day of Atonement on one specific day. How do I get past something where I know I've just messed this up? And so the, the story goes that first Aaron, who's kind of the head of the priests in this environment, he's supposed to go into the tabernacle, which is like, let's say, a portable worship space. It's on the move. It's not fixated on one spot. They move it around, but there's a holy of holies. There's like an inter interior part of it that's the most holy spot, and they've got outer rings of it. But Aaron's supposed to make his own offering first before he enters in. And then he's supposed to do something about these goats. Uh, if anybody has a coin, you could imagine they cast lots. You flip a coin, you've got two goats here. Say, God, I don't know which goat you want sacrificed and which goat you want to go to the wilderness. But you decide, because I'm not going to mess this up. God, you pick. You flip the, the coin, basically. It lands on one, say, okay, this goat dies and this one lives. And it's not quite clear which goat you'd rather be, but, but the one that dies 
is as a sacrifice. They sacrifice it. They use the blood to sprinkle in the different areas. All because what they're trying to do is clean out the place where you go to God before they start cleaning out the people. So you're cleaning out the tabernacle with the goat. Um, But then something really unique happens in this text. The goat that doesn't die is brought forward, and the priest stands there with the goat and starts confessing the sins of the people. Starts naming them. Now, I want to know how generic or concrete those confessions are. Right, because we can talk, God. You know, we didn't love you well enough, God. We were too greedy, God. You know, we could talk generic, but you start saying, "Hey, God, Joshua did this and that, and, and and Mary did this and that." Like, how precise are these confessions? Uh, I think there's like the weird bubble that I'm not sure what it, I would even want out of that. I think as uncomfortable as it is, naming them specifically actually creates the cathartic cleansing experience where it's naming, I know we don't want to talk about it, but God, this is what's happened. God, this wrong has happened. God, this person stole from this other person. And they name it out loud. That'd be an interesting worship service, right? We name it all out loud, confess it all, and then we are putting that all on the goat. Why the goat? Well, it's a beast of burden. It can carry stuff. So you start thinking metaphorically, well, we're going to ask it to carry some spiritual stuff for us. But they throw all of their their sins that they, they maybe don't want to talk about, they confess it, they put it on the goat, and they send the goat out into the wilderness. Somebody in a later part of the chapter has to actually kind of like guide it because you don't want the goat showing back up. <laughs> so you, you take the goat and you go out into the wilderness. There's something a little funny going on in the text because um, it's a little obscure. Uh, the text reads about Azazel. There is some like non-canonical text that, that try to make it like there's like this the, like a demon of the wilderness or something like that. Um, but you don't even have to go that route. Just the word here is about the goat who goes out. And in English, when Tyndale translates the Bible into English, coins the term that I used earlier, the scapegoat. If you want to know scapegoat, just put an E on the front, the escape goat of the goat that goes out. And like with the Cubs, they use Steve Bartman as the scapegoat of like, let's put all of our guilt and shame onto this one guy. Let him take it for us. In this Leviticus story, we're going to put all of our sins, put it on the goat, let the goat take it for us. And so instead of keeping on blaming each other, instead of keeping on holding on to it, let's release it, let's let it go, put it on the goat, send it to the wilderness. Why send it to the wilderness? When we don't handle our guilt and our shame and our sin, we tend to lash it out at each other. It tends to hurt others. You know, the it's, it's one of the, the real challenges that when you experience a type of abuse, it's hard that you want to break that cycle because there's this temptation to reuse that thing that's been done to you and to push that anger, that hate, that, that violence back on somebody else. And so putting it on the goat to go out into the wilderness is to say, we want to put this somewhere where it gets out of here and doesn't hurt anybody else. It just gets away. Take it as far away as possible. Let it die in the wilderness 
and let that thing be over. And so there's actually this like beautiful desire here of instead of repeating cycles of violence, instead of letting it crush you, letting it tear us apart, let's put that stain on this animal and let it go off into the wilderness to die. Something that's really important about that, this ritual, this externalizing of how do we deal with something that's spiritual, and, but let's make a visible image for it where people can let go. They did it once a year. Because, I don't know about you, but sometimes if your story is about beating yourself up, you might say, God, I am so lousy, please take this from me. And then you wake up the next morning and confess the exact same thing again. God, I'm so lousy, I can't believe I did X, please take this from me. You wake up the next day, God, I'm so lousy, I did X, please take this from me. And this ceremony is meant to be once a year because it's saying, this is final. We do this one time. You don't have to keep showing up to do this. It's just, let's take care of it. And it comes back, don't worry. So if, you'd, if it wasn't your sin this year and you do something next year, it'll come back around. But a limited time of needing to go into this confession to drop it all at God's feet and say, God, do something with this. Uh, because it's, it's not great to just be stuck in that cycle. And so they have that one day a year, and they have the audacity to believe that God is going to take away all of that guilt, all of that shame, that the tabernacle will be cleaned out, that it'll be cleansed, that the people will be cleaned out and cleansed. And that's a lot of trust, because if you know that feeling of shame and guilt, seeing this ceremony, seeing the goat, seeing it walk away and saying, God, I trust that you are actually forgiving me and that I can walk out of here new. It's almost audacious that we can think, no matter what we've done, God, you're taking that, you're taking it away, and I can move forward. The, the beauty of that ritual is hard not to see in relationship to our gospel story, the story of Jesus. Uh, it's a story where people scapegoated Jesus, where the religious authorities or the Roman authorities, where people said, How do we, um, who do we blame that the people don't want to go the direction that we want, us to, want them to go? Who do we blame for people not liking the way that the religious authorities are handling things, that don't like the way the political authorities are handling? Let's get rid of Jesus. If we get rid of Jesus, then everybody will just settle down Things will go back to normal. And so you have soldiers and religious elite and, and all sorts of people who are bringing harm to Jesus, thinking if I bring harm to him, if I stop him, if I kill him, things will go back to normal. We can act like things are normal and go about our daily life. And the experience of that scapegoat cannot be easy. If you've ever been the one that has gotten all the blame from the room, from the crowd, but what's amazing, what's transformative, what transforms the way we think about what it is to love people is in the midst of all of that, in the midst of Jesus being lashed out, Jesus is offering forgiveness to the people who are lashing out at him. Instead of trying to repeat the cycles of violence, he's telling Peter to put the sword away. While in excruciating pain, he's saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing that there is something audacious happening 
in Jesus. And so what's beautiful for the church is we don't have, you know, sorry, there's no petting zoo today. It'd be a fun little (laughs) tag along to this message about goats. But there is the beauty of seeing in Jesus, though, a one moment that we continually remember, that we can be reminded of, be reminded of it in communion, be reminded of it in worship, and reminded when you read scripture, be reminded when you sing together, be reminded of the beauty that the thing that you think might tarnish you, that you'll never be good enough, that you'll never be enough, gets removed because God is forgiving because God loves, because that's how the story works. It might seem ritualistic with the goats where you're like, this feels legalistic, but it still rests on the fact that who God is, is someone who is actually wanting to forgive you, which isn't always the way we conceptualize the world working. Sometimes we just, we can't even imagine ourselves being in a space where that's possible. But Jesus lived out, modeled, showed, that God wants to forgive, even when it is the hardest time to forgive. And so that's the beauty of our gospel. Whenever, whenever we are together, whenever two or three gather together, you know, that kind of language, whenever the church is at work, we are a testament to the fact that God forgives. And so my hope for each of us is that whatever thing that you might struggle about letting go of, however you've harmed someone, however you've messed things up, that you can just name that to God. Don't keep naming it every single day of your life. Name it to God and ask for forgiveness. If you need to name that to somebody else, if you've harmed somebody else, ask for forgiveness of them. But that you don't need to spend your entire life thinking that you are less than, not enough, because God sees you, God loves you, God sent his son for you, and you are beloved in God's sight. And that's the beauty of our gospel story. It's an invitation not to take whatever harm has happened and start spreading it and hurricaning it around to everybody else in your life, but to give it to God who can take it out into the wilderness, into the nothingness, and let it vanish because God's love is enough. And so my hope is that you can just trust in that today. You can just rest in that today. Uh, Maybe you can see yourself through God's eyes who is gracious and merciful. And so as we close in prayer, as we continue in song, I just want to invite you to think about opening yourself up, letting, letting go of whatever you can't let go of because God can handle it. God can bear that thing. God can take it away and renew you, restore you, and bring you life. Would you pray with me? Lord, I don't know what uh, each person in here's story is. I don't know what brought them in the room today, what brought them onto the online service today. But Lord, I do know that there are things in our lives that it's hard to let go of. That it's hard to experience and to accept forgiveness for. 
Lord, I ask for anybody who has something that they've never asked your forgiveness for, Lord, I ask that this is a time and a space where they might just be able to confess to you and ask you to take that thing away. For the people who have come to you in prayer for so many years, struggling with something, we ask your freedom, your liberation, your removal of that that burden, that weight, to live fully into the new creation that you are making in them and in this world. And Lord, we ask that you would help create in us not just individuals who live this out, but a community who seeks after you, who seeks you uh, and makes a place of refuge that's different than the world, that we can be a space uh, where love rules. Lord, let us rest in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.